Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. Our very special guest on the podcast this time, joining us once again, is Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And we're going to try and continue our series on the book of Revelation. Uh, we're up to chapter 14. Alistair, what a journey it's been. It really has. I mean, this is the, must be the, about the 14th, 15th episode. Um, but maybe not quite that many. I think we managed to scrunch a few chapters together earlier on. So now I wonder how chapter four, because this is a fabulous chapter. How does chapter 14 fit into the book as a whole, do you think? We can maybe see chapter 14 as a viewing of the events of the preceding chapter from a different angle. Um, so we've already seen this vision in chapter 12 and 13 of the dragon, the land, the sea beast, and then the land beast. And now we're maybe taking a different perspective upon the events, and we're going to be focusing upon the people of the Lord and then the Lamb and his actions. Now, what actually happens in chapter 14? What do we see happening? So there is a, I mean, we've early on in the book seen throne visions, and there's something similar to a throne vision here, except it's no longer in the heavenly throne room. It's in the throne room of Mount Zion, and there's going to be a new group of people gathered around. We saw the throne visions in chapter four and five, for instance. Now there's a group of people gathered around the Lamb who are redeemed. And this is the start of a new series of events kicking off um, as we go through this, the seven bowls, which will be the great judgment that follows. And then towards the end, we also see elements that anticipate the rest of the book. So chapters um, 15 to 16, 17 to 18, and 19 and 20 are summarized in the angels that go out, for instance. Now, what is Jesus or the Lamb doing here? He's surrounded by his people. And again, we might think of this as the inverse of what we saw of the beast. Um, Christ is, in some sense, the true beast. He's the Lamb, as opposed to the false um, monster that brings together the various chaos beasts, as it were, that we saw in Daniel chapter 7, in this great climactic ultimate beast. Um, what we have here is the gathering of the people of the Lord around the Lamb, and the Lamb playing a role that's very much the inverse of the beast. So if we think back to the preceding section, the beast put his mark upon his worshippers. And here we have other worshippers with a mark upon their forehead. And so there is a sort of juxtaposition, a sharp contrast between the worshippers of the beast and the beast's movement, and then on the other hand, the lamb and his people. Yeah. Who are the 144,000 and why indeed do they have names on their foreheads? So if we go back earlier in the book, we've already encountered the 144,000. The 144,000 were uh, given to us back in chapter 7, where they were 12,000 per tribe, and each of the tribes of Israel were represented. Now, that number clearly is significant. It's 12 squared times 10 to the power of 3. It's also a sort of each tribe being in Israel within Israel. Each tribe having 12,000 is perhaps significant in itself. But this is the full complement of Israel, we might see it as. It's the square 
of Israel, the 12, and then it's the the full, uh, maybe we should think of 10 cubed as a sort of architectural thing. Now, I've often wondered about this when we think about numbers in scripture. We tend to think about it maybe without paying enough attention to the way that the numbers are functioning in almost three dimensions. So the square is maybe a measure of particular numbers of people. A cube, we might think of the cube as the great unit at the very heart of Israel's life. There is a cube, which is the Holy of Holies. We see cubes elsewhere, for instance, later on in the book, the great New Jerusalem is a cube. So maybe this is a more architectural block, as it were. But this is a number that represents the whole people of redeemed Israel, and they're gathered around the Lamb. Yes, I think Peter Lightheart in his commentary suggests that John's description of the 144,000 is structured by fives and sevens. Yes, um, if we get into the details of the text, I think that can be borne out. So I'd recommend people look at Lightheart's discussion of that. Again, these numbers appear in very explicit forms. Um, We have fives and sevens listed many. If we think back through the book, for instance, on sevens, we have from the very first chapters, we have seven stars, we have seven lampstands, we have seven arms on each of the lampstands, we have the seven angels, we have the seven trumpets, we have the seven seals before them, we have the seven bowls coming up. So there are all these sevens, but then if you look at a deeper level within the structure of the text, there are sevens there to be observed as well. Lots of threes, fives, sevens um, throughout the book. Yes, I feel sometimes that these podcasts have been like watching Sesame Street as a kid. You know, today's episode is brought to you by the number seven. I mean, the entire book, in many ways, it is, is it about is. the number seven. It is. And in part, because this is the great Sabbath. This is the it wrapping is. up of everything. We better come on to uh, keep moving, otherwise we'll never get through all this. So much here, so many questions I've got. The music. Now, Alistair, we need to talk about the music. What's the significance of all the music here? And in what ways is double barrel question never asked when they said, in what ways is God a God of music? Well, I mean, this is probably too big a question to get into within just a few minutes. But when we look through scripture, music is something that is not originally present um, in the worship of the Lord. But as we go through, it's something that gets introduced, particularly during the period of David's reign. As the ark is in its shrine in Jerusalem, prior to the building of the temple, there is this initiation of a new music-filled and worship for Israel. Um, Peter Lighthart's book, From Silence to Song, is an exploration of this. And then as we move through scripture further, we see music becoming even more significant. The book of Psalms, of course, is an expression of music at the heart of Israel's life. Music, of course, is an expression of desire, of love. And as Augustine said, the lover sings. Music also represents something of the character of time, when we think about time, time and its movements can be represented in music, perhaps more fittingly than other things. Time is united through music. When we think about music, it's not just something that's a linear movement through. There are recapitulations and anticipations. There are um, callbacks to things that have existed 
previously. Music, for instance, highlights the fact that music that um, time has consistency to it. So it's not just one thing after another. There is a consistency and there is within a piece of music, it's not just one tone after another, independent and discrete from each other. There is a unity as a movement because those tones belong together. If you played a tone at a very strange point after an awkward pause, it would break the music. And yet when we think about a beautiful piece of music, it represents something of the movements that we experience in our own lives and history and elsewhere. A great person to read on this subject is Jeremy Begbie, who's explored oh, yes. the theme of music at great length. But music, I think, is something that expresses the heart of the people as they're brought towards the Lord. Think about the movement from a word of God that is primarily addressed to us without you must do this, to a word that has been deeply sedimented into our hearts. And we love it, we meditate upon it, we memorize it, and we sing it because it's something that we delight in. Music is also something that joins people together in one. We sing in unison. And if you have the experience of being in a company of a congregation that can sing beautifully and volubly, you have the experience of union within that act of song. And so at the very end, it's not inappropriate that we should see song really foregrounded. Likewise, in the prophetic literature, we see at key junctures in salvation. Read through the book of Isaiah, for instance, or look at the opening chapters of um, Luke, and you'll see this punctuation with song because God's great redemption is a cause of joy, of an expression of delight and worship and praise. And it's what we see here as well. Uh, we might think back to the great events of deliverance, for instance, at the Red Sea. We'll see that as we go further into chapter 15. Song punctuates salvation. Yes, indeed. Now, we'd better ask you why the 144,000 are described as virgins. Yeah, so we might think about this in terms of the later images that we'll have of the church itself as a spotless virgin. This is a, an image of the church as a fitting spouse, um, a fitting bride. And we might also think about the ways that as virgins, they are committed to the Lamb above all other things. There is a sense of maybe we might think about it as a sort of lifelong holy warfare they are committed to the Lamb as lifelong Nazarites, perhaps. Or we might think about the way that they are those who have thoroughly separated themselves from impurity. Um, we might think about this in terms of the image of the harlot that we'll encounter later on. And so these images, I think, interplay. And in part, the virgins are an expression of that set-apartness, um, that holiness, that connection with the bride and that distance from the harlot. Okay, uh, now we get some angels, three angels, the number three again, uh, verses six to 13. Uh, what do the angels actually announce? So there are three things that they announce. There's the, um, they announce the eternal gospel, and then the second, the destruction of Babylon or fall of Babylon, and then the third, um, the judgment upon the beast and the worshippers. Now, this 
can be seen as a summary of the material that we'll have in the rest of the book. So the first one that summarizes the, the gospel could be seen as a summary of the material from chapters 15 and 16, particularly. Think about chapter 15. Um, at the very beginning, we have, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is very much the um, theme that we have in the first angel and the angel's message. It's the hour of judgment, God's sovereignty over the nations, the heavens and the earth, the sea, the springs of water, and judgment moving from those, uh, coming into those realms and the Lord's sovereignty being proved. And then the next one is the condemnation of the fall of Babylon the Great. Again, this is something that is picked up later on, um, chapter 18, verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And so this, um, again, is something that's summarizing later material, in this case, chapters 18 and 17 which is the material concerning the judgment of the harlot and of Babylon the Great. The drinking the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, again, themes chapter 17, she's drinking the blood of the saints, she's polluted with that blood, but also there are themes of wine that we'll get in um, this section. So it seems that this is an important theme that's sum summing up wider material. And then the final angel refers to the events of chapters 19 to um, part of 21. And you might think about this in terms of the judgment upon the beasts in chapter 19. Let's see, 19 verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So again, we've got a summary of material that we'll have later on. These three angels prepare us for the rest of the book, and then we have a sense of where we're going. Yes, I want to come on and come to the second scene in the chapter, The Harvest, because this is fascinating. Um, but before we do, I'd better ask you, who or what is Babylon in the book of Revelation? Yes. So Babylon, of course, is a very familiar um, theme within Scripture. Babylon is first introduced to us in the um, place of Babel, the place where there's this great tower built, this sort of false empire that has at its heart a great tower to connect heaven and earth, conduit between the earth and the heaven, and a great city that gathers together all humanity around it. So there is, on the one hand, a vertical um, construction project, on the other hand, a horizontal um, construction project, which is the city. Those things um, are in the back of our mind when we read of the call of Abraham. He's called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Later on in scripture, Babylon comes into the picture again as a power that is threatening from the north. They gain dominance in the north. They gain dominance over 
the Assyrians, they gain dominance over the power in the south of Egypt, and they become the dominant power in that region. And then around a series of years in 605 BC and, and 597 BC, and then in 586 BC, there are a series of waves of exiles. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem ending that in 586 under Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, we're familiar with this, with the story of people like Daniel, or we might think about Jeremiah, um, other prophets who were operative at the time of the capture in Babylon, Ezekiel, for instance. And that period of time is one that comes to an end about 70 years after the rise of um, Babylon's dominance, as the city is defeated by the Medes and Persians in um, 539 BC with Cyrus. And then there's the release of Israel shortly after that. And it seems that this city is not just one among many rivals within Israel's history. It becomes archetypal. It represents the great empire that threatens, just as Babel was archetypal for the attempts of humanity to form these great imperial projects and to gain dominance and all authority and power to consolidate it in their rule, we have something similar in the symbol of Babylon. Babylon, of course, is spoken about in the prophets, in places like Isaiah, in places like Jeremiah, and its destruction is foretold in the most um, apocalyptic terms, in terms that would later be used in reference to other cities. And here, it seems, the city in question has a an archetypal character again. And so it's connected with Babylon. It's connected also with Sodom and Egypt. And of course, it's connected, although not explicitly by name, with Jericho. It's the city that's brought down with seven blasts of a trumpet and also the harlot city. You could think about the connection with Jericho and Rahab. So there are these larger biblical themes that present Babylon as an archetypal city. And this great rival city. Now, as we look through the book of Revelation, there are seven letters to cities with which it begins. And then there's a an eighth city, this city of Babylon. What is this city? It seems to me that the city, which is described elsewhere, Sodom and Egypt, and um, the city where our Lord was crucified, we might think about the way that the city is represented as a sort of false bride. Um, it seems most likely to me that this city is to be taken as the city of Jerusalem, representing as the head the people of Israel, um, the unfaithful um, people of Israel, as opposed to the image that we see, for instance, in this chapter of the faithful people, the 144,000. And so as we go through the city or the Babylon is riding upon the beast, um, it seems that the beast is connected with Rome. And so many have seen the harlot as Rome. I think that's an incorrect identification. I think the harlot is connected with Rome and allied with Rome. It's not itself Rome. The sea beast then is Rome and the land beast is Israel. And so the false leaders of Israel. And so I think that's connected in its turn with the beast, which is the land beast, the sea beast, and then the harlot which is connected with, on the one hand, the sea beast, 
the, the land beast and it's also connected as that which rides upon or depends upon the power of the sea beast of Rome. Yes, right. Well, then we get this fantastic section of, of the harvest, which is very Dionysian, if you're thinking about um, Greek tragedy and Euripides and things like that. Why does Revelation 14 end with a harvest scene? And why does Jesus reap the harvest of the land? And why is there all this blood and wine? Yes. So we have um, harvest type imagery and wine press type imagery earlier on in scripture. We might think about something like Isaiah chapter 63, the vision of that chapter. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bosra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Very similar imagery. And we have these greater themes of harvest elsewhere in scripture. We might think about the way that Israel's life was so ordered around agricultural events, the harvest times. So the um, wheat and the barley harvests connected with the earlier feasts of weeks and with um, unleavened bread and the first fruits in the middle of that feast. We might also think about the way that the later feast of tabernacles brought together a number of other forms of harvest, the various harvest of the land and its grapes, its figs, its olives and other um, produce. So there is this ordering of Israel's life around its agriculture, and that becomes symbolic. Israel is described as a vine. We might think of the ways in which Israel is also seen as a field. Christ uses the image of wheat or um, the wheat and the tares, the field that is about to be harvested, the fields white for the harvest that he describes to his disciples. All of these are familiar images in scripture. And here we have, I think, an eschatological employment of that as these things are finally harvested. The harvest time has come, the day has arrived and the time of judgment is occurring. We might think about this in terms of the wheat and the tares, for instance. Things are allowed to grow together until the time of the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, as the angels are sent out, there is this division, this separation of the wheat, the um, true crop, and then the tares, the false. And here we have something similar. There is this climactic judgment, and the two different parties are going to be separated from each other. And there's going to be this catastrophic judgment upon those that are destroyed. Think about also the imagery that we have in places like Psalm 1. Um, they'll be like the chaff that the wind blows away. Surely the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. This image of the wicked as chaff on the threshing floor at the time of harvest, it's an important theme. It's at the time when there is going to be this division. The wicked are going to get their comeuppance and the righteous are going to be redeemed. Yes. In what sense do the grapes become the agents of the wrath of God? 
we might think of the ways in which the image of the blood of the saints connected with connected with wine gets used um, elsewhere in scripture. We might think of also of the image of poisoned wine um, handed out among the nations in the book of Jeremiah. Or we might think about the way that the um, harlot drinks the poison chalice of the blood of the saints. And we might think of the ways that there are images of being filled up with the blood of the saints in Matthew 23, or the way in which there are ascending sacrifices of incense, bowls of incense, and then bowls of wine being ascending up to the Lord in offering. But now there's a sort of descending wine of judgment that's coming out. And so there is this use of familiar biblical imagery or imagery that should at least be familiar to us um, as a form of bringing upon the people the judgment that they had um, deserved. You might think also of blood being brought upon the people, Abel's blood crying from the ground, the blood of the Nile that brings to light the dead bodies of the infants that were cast into it. Um, again, this judgment of blood being brought upon the land, polluting, but also making bitter and destroying um, and representing the final judgment in the sangri sanguinary character of their blood being shed upon the land. All of those things are coming together here, I think. So these 144,000 folk are, are martyrs, presumably, are they, in the 30 to 70 AD period? Well, we might think also of the image of the, um, the martyrs as the ones who are most closely following after Christ. They are the ones who are, like Christ himself, martyred, bearing the witness and, again, connecting the word witness and martyrdom. And there's this following in Christ's footsteps as they are raised up from the base of the altar where the blood would be found, and then they're raised up to heaven. And there is this following the footsteps of martyrdom, their blood being shed, filling up the full measure of the sins, and then wrath coming upon um, the unfaithful city to the utmost. utmost. This is something that is foretold in places like Matthew 23. Yep. Last question, Alice, because we're just about out of time. I can't resist asking you this question. It's a bit left field. In what sense is Jesus a greater Dionysius? Yes, Christ is the one who brings wine. Um, think about the beginning of his ministry. It's the gift of wine in the wedding feast at Cana. Christ is the one who brings life to the party in the wine. Also in the Old Testament, wine is connected with rest. Wine's connected with the end of the day. It's the sort of Sabbath within the day. When you finish your work, when you're um, resting from your labors and you are relaxing. It's not sleep, it's before sleep, it's the Sabbath of the day. And Christ is the one who brings wine. Christ is the one who um, drinks and um, becomes drinking and eating, feasting. People can't fast when the bridegroom is with them. We think about the beginning of Christ's mi ministry in a wedding feast, bringing wine. The end of his ministry is also a wedding feast. And there's also wine. And the wine is that of judgment, but also there's a wine of blessing too. So it seems that this um, image of Christ as a sort of Dionysius is one that's quite fitting. Christ is connected with that gift of wine that is maturation, fulfillment. Christ would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it new in the kingdom. It's again the sign of 
the work having been done. You can't drink wine when you're on the job. As the high priest, the high priest couldn't drink wine. The Nazarite, while he was under his vow, couldn't drink wine. But when the time had come, they'd finished their labors and they were they were completely done. They could drink wine. Likewise, the king is one who drinks wine upon his throne as he's finished. His labors are done. Um, there is a, a sense in which Christ, as the bringer and giver of wine, um, is an important image within the book of John and also in Revelation. There we go. Fascinating discussion, as always. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States talking about Revelation 14. Thank you, as always, Alistair, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thanks once again. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.